You can be seated. The choir and the band and the priest team, they're going to make their way down. There are a couple of resources that uh, pastors through the years have relied upon, have depended upon for certain information. You know, it'd be easy for me to put out a little survey and ask people here in this church what they think about a certain question or a certain topic. But you know, if I ask that question here, if I do a survey here, I'm, I'm going to get a, a pretty limited response. I'm, I'm going to get a response from a, a pool of people, from a group of people who are kind of like-minded. Um, who most of us here, we, we have some of the similar backgrounds. We live in a, a community that's, that's pretty similar. We, we live in, in this place in eastern Virginia. It's different than other places in the nation. And so there are groups that we depend on, that pastors depend on, to get certain information, to get some perspective of, of where the, the mindset and the thought of people is, and there's a research group out there. It's called Barner Research Group, and pastors often pull information from the Barner Research Group because when they send out a survey, they send it out to 10 or 20,000 people scattered all across the United States from all different walks of life, people who are believers, people who are non-believers. If they'll respond and they'll send back in the survey, they send out these surveys and they get them back. So it's a pretty good cross-section of what's out there. Well, back about five years ago, it was in 2015, the Barner Research Group did a survey, and this was the five-question survey that they had. They wanted to know, they wanted to ask the question, they wanted to know whether or not, or what people believed about Jesus. They wanted to know what people thought about Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you the five questions that were um, on that survey, just a five-question survey, and this is what they asked. They said, Do you believe that Jesus Christ was a real person who actually lived? That was the first question on the survey. And then they asked a second question. Do you believe that Jesus was God? Do you believe that when he lived on earth, Jesus Christ was human and committed sins like other people? That was the third question. The fourth question was, have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life today? And then the last question was, when you die, you will go to heaven because, and then they gave several responses that people could make towards that. Now, the response to that survey was really interesting. It was really curious to see what this response was that came back from people all across America. And you could probably guess at some of the responses, but you might be surprised at some of them as well. Did you know that when they sent out the survey and they asked people across all different perspectives, across all different walks of life, all across America, that when they asked, do you believe that Jesus was a real person? that 92% of those who responded to the survey said, yes, Jesus was a real person. 92%. That means uh, almost 19 out of 20 people said, yes, Jesus was a real person. He really actually lived. He was a real person. 92% of people said that. Now, they also distinguished between generations as well. And 
the answers to the survey really weren't much different from a millennial, that younger group, 18 to about 25, 27, a millennial or a Gen X group who go from that 27 to about, you know, 50, 52, and then the boomer group that kind of goes up to that age group that's a little beyond 70, and then the group that they called elders. (laughs) There really wasn't much difference in the survey. 87% of millennials said, yes, Jesus was a real person. 96% of elders said Jesus was a real person. There really wasn't that much difference between them. In that survey that they sent out in regard to this particular topic, 92% of all adults said, yes, Jesus was a real person. When they asked the question, have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important to your life today? Have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important to your life today? Just think for a moment. If you are doing this survey, if you are going to look at the results, what percentage of people all across America, what percentage of adults do you think would say, yes, I have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that still impacts my life today? What kind of percentage? What would you think? It's okay. Call it out. 30, hmm? 25, 100, wow, that's good, 62%. I was really surprised by that. Here in America where we've got such a movement, or at least it seems like it's talked about such a movement away from religion and those who don't believe in God and don't believe in Jesus Christ, 62% of people said, Yes, I've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that still impacts my life today. I was surprised. And when they were asked the question, I will go to heaven because, and they gave different responses to this. I will go to heaven because 63% of the people who responded to the survey across all different walks, it wasn't just sent to Christians, it was sent to people who don't even claim to be Christians. 63% said, I'll go to heaven because I have confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. 63% of the people who responded. Now, in that survey, there were two other questions, and these two questions really caught my attention and the responses that were there. They asked a question. It was actually the second question that they asked. Do you believe that Jesus was God? Now, I put the question up there. It's a little faded. might be hard to see. But do you believe that Jesus was God? And they have a mark there. The black section shows those, the percentage of people that believe that Jesus was actually God. The, the green section, the light green section would say, um, I believe that he was a religious or a spiritual leader, and then the, the white section say, I, I really don't know. I don't know whether he was God or not. This was the response back, okay? So if you look at that graph right there, here's what people said. Of those who answered the survey, 63% said, I'll go to heaven because I've confessed my sins and I've trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. 62% of people said, that, um, oh, had to get back to that question. 
62% of the people said, um, have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important to your life today? But only 56% of the people who responded said, he's God. said, no, he's just a leader. 18% said, I don't even know if he's God. I'm not sure. 63% of people said, I've confessed my sins and trusted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, but only 56% said he was God. The answer to this last question that I'm going to put up in front of you astounded me even more. When he lived on earth, Jesus Christ was human and committed sins like other people. And they had to say, I agree strongly, I agree somewhat, I disagree somewhat, disagree strongly, or I don't know. Okay? In other words, they had to disagree or agree strongly. Jesus was human and he sinned. They had to agree strongly with that, or agree sort of, or I don't know. And here's the response to that. So out of the survey that Barna Research Group did, here's what they found out. 52% of all adults who respond to this said, Jesus sinned. 2% said, I don't know. 15% said, I disagree somewhat with that. How do you disagree somewhat with the idea that Jesus sinned? Now, there's a reason that I bring these questions before you. We're starting into a sermon series today. We're starting into a sermon series, and the way that we're doing this sermon series and the way that we're moving forward with our worship time together, we're going to be gathered together in in our worship time all of our generations together. But we recognize that when we start doing some of our teaching time, when we start doing some of the message time, it may be good for us to have a certain section of the message that's geared a little bit more towards those who might be younger. But also what we want to do is we want to engage those parents so that they're connected with their children in their teaching time as well. So here's what we've done. With this sermon series that we're launching into, When we get to a certain place in the service, we'll kind of introduce the message, what the message topic is for that day, and then we're going to allow our children, and we're going to encourage their parents to go with them as well. There will be the same message outline. It will be exactly the same outline in here with the adult group as it is with the children and their parents. The same message points, it's just that some of the illustrations will be geared towards children and their parents to help them connect together spiritually, where us adults... And teens who are still left in this room, we're following the same sermon outline. We're looking at the same passage. We have the same sermon points that are included in this message as the one to the children. And it's just an opportunity for parents and kids to engage this message topic on a level that's a little more geared towards your children. So when we have this transition time, parents will go out with their kids. We encourage you to. Do you have to? Well, we're not going to answer that question for you. We'll still take your kids even if you don't come. But we want to encourage you to start taking that responsibility to be connected with your children and what they're learning spiritually. And there will be some adult leaders who go out with them. Hey, Grandma, Granddad, if you want to go back and join your child back in that time that's geared towards them, By all means, God bless you. We would love for you to. Mom, Dad, if you want to keep your child in here, 
where the teens and the adults are, keep them in here with you. That's your choice. We want to encourage you to make that decision for your family and where your children are at. But in just a few moments, we're going to kind of separate, and we're going to allow our children and our parents go for a message that's geared a little more towards them. But this is the topic that we're going to be talking about. We're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking at Colossians for about the next 12 weeks. And Stafford came up with this graphic for us. Colossians is the book that we're looking at, and here's the subtitle for this book. What we believe about Jesus Christ matters. What we believe about Jesus Christ matters. And this is the topic of the book of Colossians. This is the whole focus of the book of Colossians, talking about Jesus Christ and what we believe about him. Because I have this question for you. If someone believes that Jesus was just a good person, that he just walked on this earth and he lived a good life, and that he didn't die on the cross as a sinless savior to pay for the sins of all mankind, but he was just a good teacher, and somebody says, I believe in Jesus, but they believe in that Jesus does it do them any good? Does it do any good to believe in Jesus if we don't believe in the Jesus that the Bible tells us existed? Because in our culture today, in America today, we have plenty of people who are trying to redact parts of Scripture, remove parts of Scripture and say, well, I just don't think Jesus would act that way even though Scripture says he did. I just don't think that Jesus would do that even though Jesus did. I just don't think Jesus would say that even though Jesus did. And if we start making our own Jesus, are we then doing what God commanded the Israelites not to do? Don't make a God in your own image. And yet in many ways, that's what's happening. So we're going to be talking for these next several weeks, for these next 11 or 12 weeks, we're going to be talking through the book of Colossians here, also in our kids and adults-focused worship time, message time. We're going to be talking about Jesus, and we're going to be looking at why what we believe about Jesus really matters. Now, this is that point in our service where we're going to kind of divide a little bit. We're going to encourage parents and kids. Pastor J.D. and his leadership team are going to kind of stand up and make their way out. And if kids and parents, if you'd like to join them for this time, you're going to have a message from Pastor J.D. that is geared a little more towards your level, and we encourage you to go at this time. Adults, teens, if you'll kind of hang out in here, we'll continue on with this message topic here in just a moment. So we'll let our kids and parents and also their leaders make their way out this morning. The rest of you, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to read today from the book of Colossians. We're going to read starting in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to give our kids and give their parents, grandparents an opportunity to slip on out. Now, if you are a parent that is uh, remaining in here and your child's gone to the back, just remember you are required to take them home with you when you go today. Colossians chapter 1, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8 is where we're going to read from today as we start into this series out of Colossians. Paul 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now, that's as far as we're going to get today. We're going to look at this section of Colossians chapter 1, and here's our focus today. We're going to look at the hope of the gospel. We're going to talk about the hope that is found in the gospel, and we're going to look here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Now, to give you a little background about this book as we launch into this study out of Colossians, anytime that we do a book study, One of the things that I'm committed to doing when we do a study that is an entire book of Scripture, whether it's the Psalms and a four-year-long Psalm project, we're not skipping any part of it. We don't skip any of the Psalms along the way. Or whether it's the Gospel of John, we don't leave out any portions of the Gospel of John. In the book of Colossians, we're going to look at all of the book of Colossians. And it's important for us to understand some of the context and theme from which this book is written. But first and foremost, we need to keep in mind that there are always two authors of every book of Scripture. There are at least two for every book of Scripture. Where this says that Paul is writing this letter, we've got to keep in mind it's not just Paul writing the letter, it is the Holy Spirit through Paul who is writing this letter. It is not Paul coming up with the words, it's the Holy Spirit coming up with the words and the Holy Spirit imprinting them upon Paul's heart and mind and the Holy Spirit giving Paul the utterance to write these words down. Here in this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible, the inspired, the inerrant word of God, that it is truth without any mixture of error. And the only way that that is possible is if the Holy Spirit is the author who gives the words to those who write these words down. And so it's the Holy Spirit as one author and Paul, the human being who's writing these words down, who's writing it. And there are two audiences. He's writing this to the church in Colossae. But also the Holy Spirit is writing this not just to the church in Colossae, but all of the churches in that region and all of the churches down through age and time. Through all of human history, this letter is for all the church of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit and Paul are writing this, and it is to the church in Colossae and also to us. Now this letter is unique in a little different way in that Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossae. It is one church, not like Galatians where it's a region and there are many churches. It is one church. It is a small area. It is a small community. And Paul has never visited Colossae when he writes this letter. Unlike his letter to the Ephesians, where he's visited there, 
The Galatians, he's visited a number of the churches in that region. Philippi, he spent a great deal of time there. Thessalonica, where Paul had visited and shared the gospel, Colossae is different. Paul's never been there. He writes this letter to the church in Colossae, and he's never been in this town. He simply hears what's happening there in this church. He hears great things that are happening in the community of Colossae, how the gospel has been shared. And he mentions here in chapter 1, where we just read in verse 7, that there was one person in particular who was very instrumental in the gospel being shared in the city of Colossae. His name was Epaphras. Epaphras was the first one to bring the gospel to the city of Colossae. And he began to invest some time there and share this gospel. And people began to have their hearts and lives changed and transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they made their commitment to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And their church began to develop there in the city of Colossae because Epaphras was faithful in sharing the gospel. And Paul is hearing about what's happening in the city of Colossae. But the church has been established long enough now. There are enough people who have come to faith in Christ that there are some all, also some other teachers who have come through. And there are some other teachers who have started to teach people in the church some doctrines about Jesus that are false. Paul writes this letter. The Holy Spirit prompts Paul to write this letter to the church in Colossae because many of the people there have started to believe things about Jesus that are not accurate. And so Paul writes to the church to remind them that what we believe about Jesus is important. Not just saying that we believe in Jesus, but believing in an accurate description and understanding of who Jesus Christ is, was, and what he did, what he came to accomplish. Now, he starts off this letter in Colossians chapter 1, and he writes in these first two verses, in that culture, they give a description where they say, hey, this is Paul who's writing this letter. Those of you who remember actually writing a letter, which I'm kind of curious how many of you have actually, not an email, not a text, but actually written a, an actual letter before. That's okay. Don't be shy. How many of you have never in your life ever written a letter they're not willing to admit it, but I know that there are probably some. You know, in our culture, we start off our letter and say, hey, Donnie, and then we write everything down to the bottom, and then we get to the bottom, and we sign our name, Rob. And what's one of the things you do when you get a letter in the mail, and it doesn't have the return address on the outside? You open the letter, and you look at the very bottom for the signature. Well, they f- fixed that in this culture because they sign it at the beginning, Paul. Hey, this is Paul writing to you, the church in Colossae. And so he sends this letter to them, and the first verse or two is just a greeting to the church in Colossae where he's never been. He said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, God's chosen me to be an apostle of Christ. And I'm here with Timothy, our brother. Verse 2, I'm writing to you, the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. I want to give you a greeting, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first two verses are really kind of the introduction. They're kind of the welcome. It's the greeting that Paul gives. And in verse 3, we pick up part of this message that we're going to look at today, talking about the hope of the gospel. It says in verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as we pray for you 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, ever since we heard that you came to faith in Jesus Christ, ever since we heard that you believed in Jesus Christ, ever since we heard of what God has been doing in you, we have been thanking God for you. Since we heard of your heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, there are five things from this little section here in verses 1 through 8. It's actually verses 3 through 8. Five things that Paul immediately wants to affirm and confirm about the hope of the gospel, the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in the Savior whom we have believed in. And the first of these is this. It's found there in verse 5. The first of these is this. Your hope is secured eternally in heaven. That's what he says to them. This hope which is secured in heaven for you. Your hope which is secured eternally in heaven. Now that you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that has been settled and secured in the hand, in the heart, in the mind of God forever. Once you have been saved, you are always saved. Once you come to faith in Jesus, you can't lose that. Now, if it were just this passage of Scripture, there might be a little more confusion. And by the way, I've got to be totally honest here. The church has had this discussion for centuries. Christians have argued over this topic literally for centuries, whether Once a person comes to faith in Christ, they keep that salvation for eternity or they could possibly lose that salvation. I don't expect to solve it for all of the church all around the world, but hopefully I can help solve it for some of you today. Here's a few scriptures that just remind us of this. If you want to flip over with me, just a book or two, you can flip over to Ephesians. If you want to flip over to Ephesians, chapter 1, it says, in him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit came into your heart at the moment of your salvation, and he is the promise of God that once you are saved, you will always be saved. Verse 14, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So in other words, when you made this decision to accept the gift that God has extended to you, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't lose that. It doesn't go away. Even if at some point in time later you start having some questions or concerns or doubts and wondering whether or not that decision for Christ was really genuine or true, if it was genuine and true, it can't go away even though your heart and mind might have changed some through the years. Not convinced? Well, maybe over here in 1 Peter In chapter 1, as Peter is writing to the church, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, according to his mercy, has begotten us. He born us again. It wasn't just that I was born again. He bore us again, has begotten us to his abundant mercy 
again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept, you are held, you are secured, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in in the last time. In other words, this is what the Holy Spirit through Peter says. If you think you could lose your salvation, that means that you have a low view of the power of God. You don't believe that God can keep that which you committed unto him against that day. Jesus put it this way. That which my father holds in his hand, no human being can snatch away from him. When I come to faith in Christ and when I place my life and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, when I place my life into the hand of the Father, I can't even take it back. Our hope is secured eternally in heaven. Why is this important? Why is this so critical? When the Holy Spirit through Paul writes to the church in Colossae about this, here's part of what's been happening in the church In the church, there's begun this teaching that says, well, Jesus isn't really God. Jesus never really rose from the dead. Jesus is more of an idea. And if you believe in the idea of Jesus, then you're good. Now, by implication, if I'm only believing in an idea, in a concept of Jesus, if there comes a point in time when I stop believing in the idea, the ideal of Jesus, well, then I'm not saved. So I could be saved today and could be lost tomorrow and could be saved again next week and could be lost again next year, and I could be saved at my dying breath at the end of my life. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, if Jesus is God incarnate, if he died on the cross to pay for my sins, if he bore me again, I can't ever lose that once I come to faith in him. Now, part of the problem is, just as D.L. Moody said generations ago, So the problem with this thought is that some people think they're saved when they're not. That walking an aisle, praying a prayer that I may not have fully believed or even being baptized in a baptistry, that doesn't save me. It's belief, trust in, and commitment to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who died on the cross, shed his blood to pay for all my sins. It is a commitment to that Savior that saves me. And once I make the decision to turn my life over to Jesus Christ and genuinely mean it in my heart and mind, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us if any man is in Jesus Christ, God has made him into a new creation. God performs a miracle in his heart, in her heart, and makes you, me, into a new person. 
And so if there is any question, if there is any doubt that lingers in your mind, here's the question that you need to be asking yourself. Have I genuinely committed my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord? If I have, my hope is secured eternally forever in heaven. If I haven't, it's not. Now, here in verse 5, Paul also says this. He says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before. So because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, it is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Hope is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of Scripture, of the truth of the gospel. Our hope comes from Scripture. Our hope comes from Scripture. Our hope is secured eternally in heaven, but our hope comes from the word of God. Our hope comes directly from Scripture. I've got a question for you. I've got a question for you. All right, you think with me. How did you first... First, how did you first hear about Jesus? How did you first hear about Jesus? How many of you heard about Jesus first from a parent? How many of you heard first about Jesus from a grandparent or other family member? So how many of you heard about Jesus from a friend or family member? First. Friend or family member, that includes parents. Yes, parents are family. Yeah. Friend or family. All right. Friend or family. Now, if you're willing to say, how many of you heard about Jesus first from somewhere other than a friend or a family member? Okay, a few of them. Those of you who heard about Jesus first from a friend or a family member, where do you think they heard about Jesus first? Probably a friend or family member, right? And where do you think they heard about Jesus first? Probably a friend or family member. Okay, well, here's the question. How do you know that what they told you about Jesus is accurate? Well, because it's my mama, and my mama wouldn't lie to me. (laughs) God bless you for being so innocent. Well, it's my granddaddy. That's great. But how do you know? How do you know that what they told you is accurate? You know, somewhere in here, there has to be a standard. There has to be a standard that we go back and we rely on and that we're able to say, I know that what she told me is accurate because here it says it right here. I know that what he told me is accurate because here it says it right here. There has to be a standard. We, we innately understand this. We know this because in our culture, we have some standards that are kind of unshakable. We have some standards that we've agreed on. Well, even if we haven't agreed on, certain people have, and they hold it up as a standard. If you're going to go build a new house, did you know that you actually have a building code that you have to follow? You have to have a certain amount of insulation in the walls before they will give you a permit to move into your house. you got to have 
in, I'm not sure in Hiraiko, but certain sections where we were, where we've done some renovations on houses, you have to wrap the house in Tyvex before you move into the house. If your house isn't tough-wrapped, you don't get an occupancy permit. What's really interesting is in one community, that was the code. In another community, it said, you don't tough-wrap your house underneath brick. And if you do, they make you take it off before you hang the brick. Uh, Go figure. But it was the code, and we better follow the code. You have a code. When you leave here today and you hop in your car, you have a code that you're expected to follow. You know, that was that driver's thing that you took years ago with some questions on there that you had to answer. It may have been a long time ago, but there's a code you're expected to follow. And when you see those signs on the side of the road that say 5-5, that's part of the code. The big red sign, that's part of the code. We innately know that there has to be some code, there has to be some standard or else somewhere in culture we start to fall apart. We have a monetary code that we tend to follow here in America. When you go to your restaurant today and you buy your, I can't say Chick-fil-A sandwich, they're not open, but you go to McDonald's and you buy your cheeseburger, you expect that when they hand your money back, you give them a $20 bill, they're not going to give you 35 cents in change. How do you know? Because it's the code. It's the monetary code. They can't say, well, yeah, that 35 cents is really equal to $9.72. You just, you don't understand the McDonald's code. There's a code. There's, there's a standard. We, we innately know this. So why is it then that we as human beings, especially here in this culture, think that we can make our own code when it comes to spirituality, that we can make our own code when it comes to a relationship with an almighty God who has existed for all eternity when we've been here only for a blink of the eye? Our hope comes from Scripture. Our hope comes from Scripture. And if what we believe about Jesus Christ doesn't match with Scripture, I know who's wrong. Let me give you this phrase. Hope that is not in the real gospel is no hope. Hope without the real gospel isn't hope. If we imply that Jesus is less than what Scripture says, if we imply that he is not God, that he didn't die on the cross, that you don't have to believe in him, that you can believe whatever you want to believe in, he takes all good people to heaven on his polar express train. If that's what we teach, that's not hope. Because Scripture gives us a standard. This is part of what the Holy Spirit was using Paul to write to the church in Colossae. When you start teaching different things about Jesus that don't fit with Scripture, there isn't any hope in that. Now quickly, let me cover these last three. It says in verse 6, this truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, it's bringing forth fruit, It is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. This hope is available to everybody. It's available to all. It's available to everybody who is an unbeliever. It's available to everybody who is a believer as well. It's available to everybody who is a believer. This hope is available to everybody who's a believer. That's you. That's us. 
That's all of us here in this room who have committed to Christ. This hope is available to you. Paul writes to the church in Colossae and says, don't forget this hope. Don't forget your life is secured already. Don't forget this hope. Jesus has paid the price for you on the cross. As you walk through your day tomorrow, as you face whatever obstacle may come, your eternity is secure. Does that make a difference to you? Should it make a difference to you? Of course, because if I face some obstacle here now, whether it's some kind of illness, whether it's some kind of job problem, whether it's some kind of relationship problem, I know that all of it will work out in the end. It may not work out in this time the way that I want it to, but there is a time for me when I know everything will be made right. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain. There will be no more crying. No matter what I go through here, this hope makes all the difference for me and for you. Don't forget this hope. Don't forget it. Oh, but this hope is also available for all who don't believe which reminds us in the church that no matter how far a person may have gone, this hope can still reach them. This hope can still break through the barriers and walls that people erect in their lives. This hope is available to all, and this hope bears fruit. It's in the world is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. This hope bears fruit. Well, what's the hope that bears fruit? Well, that is where the world, who don't know Jesus Christ, they actually begin to become the church. This is the goal. This is the goal. This is the fruit that the gospel is supposed to bear. Those people who don't know Jesus Christ, when they receive this hope, they become the people of Jesus Christ. This is the goal, this is the hope that those who don't believe actually become us. They become the church. And those who do believe that the gospel begins to bear this fruit in me that I begin to come, become more like Jesus Christ. The world becomes the church and the church becomes more like Christ. If we want to see our world transformed, if we want to see our nation transformed, if we want to see our community impacted, here's how we see it. We share the hope. They become the church. The church becomes more like Christ. And this hope bears fruit. One last thing, down in verse 7 and verse 8, it says, As you learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who declared to us your love in the Spirit. This hope must be declared. This hope must be declared. Paul says you can't stop talking about Jesus, and you can't stop talking about Jesus the way that Scripture talks about Jesus. This hope must be declared. It can't just be by example. You can't just live your life and think that people will know all about Jesus without using any words. It must have an audible witness. This hope must be declared. Verse 7, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, faithful minister, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. This hope must be declared. So, Epaphras was the guy who shared the gospel with these people in Colossae so that they came to faith in, in Jesus. This hope must be declared. Who, who was your Epaphras? 
Who shared with you? Who who are the ones that poured this gospel truth into your life? Who is your Epaphras? You know, when, when I pause to think about this, some, some immediate names and images, faces come to mind. And obviously, it began with my parents. You know, from the time that I was itty-bitty, I was in church. Parents had me in church from the time I was just an infant. You know, part of my Epaphras was my parents, my grandparents, and godly grandparents. But it wasn't just them. I had some people in the church along the way who were kind of like an Epaphras to me. I remember my fifth and sixth grade boys Sunday school teacher. I mentioned him before. That's because I'm pretty fond of him. His name was Bill Fernall. He taught me to love digging in the Word, digging in Scripture. That boys' Bible class, study class, we'd do Bible baseball every week. We'd go in and learn something about the Bible. We better be digging in there to find the answers to the questions he had. My youth minister at Seaford Baptist, Max Holt, he was one of the people who was an Epaphras for me. Who's your Epaphras? Who's, who's the person who shared with you? Who, who was it who taught you, told you? And I didn't add this question. I meant to. Who are you supposed to be an Epaphras to? This hope must be declared. We had people declare it to us. But now that I have had this hope declared to me, if I've come to faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in him as my Savior, it's not done. It's just the beginning. Because now this hope must be declared through me. Who am I supposed to be an Epaphras to? This hope that's talking about that Paul, that the Holy Spirit is talking about here in these first few verses. His hope is secured eternally in heaven. Our hope comes from the word of God. It's available to everybody. It bears fruit, and this hope must be declared. Now, you hear all those things, and here's the question that kind of leads to this end as we draw down to the conclusion. What, what's the response? How am I supposed to respond to this hope? What response does this hope demand of me? Now, let me give you a little, little advance warning, okay? Kind of like Pastor J.D. did last week, if you were here for that message. Um, there's nothing in Scripture that says we need to end our time gathering here by singing a song. Now, I know the disciples, after they'd had the Lord's Supper, they sang a song and they went out. The Bible does demand a response to what God tells us but it doesn't necessarily always have to be put to music. And so when we talk, this isn't always going to be this way every Sunday, but this Sunday it is. This is the invitation time. Let me explain. We're not going to have a song that plays where you stand and you can respond by walking down front here or kneeling and praying here. You get to respond right where you are. You get to respond right where you're seated. You don't have to move. Physically. But this message does demand something of me. What response does this hope that I have in Jesus Christ demand? Well, first of all, it's what Paul said back at the very beginning as he wrote this letter. 
He said, I should be giving thanks. I should, I should be giving thanks. Giving thanks for what? Well, I should be giving thanks for the fact that somebody shared this with me, that somebody told me about the hope in Jesus Christ. I should be giving thanks that my salvation is secured forever in eternity. I should be thanking God that they told me and I trusted in this gospel message and now my eternity is secured forever if I've trusted in Christ. I should be giving thanks for you. That's what Paul says here. We need to be giving thanks for others, for their salvation. You got a child that's come to faith in Christ? Thank God. Praise the Lord. You got a spouse that's come to faith in Christ? Thank God, because there are plenty of people that don't have a spouse that knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What response does this hope demand? It calls for me to give thanks, but it also calls for me to pray. Because you see, one of the painful things that comes from studying a passage like this is that we realize, we realize that not everybody's responded. We realize that not everybody has accepted this gift of salvation that's been offered through Jesus Christ. And so we need to be praying always. We need to be praying, just as Paul said he was doing here for the early church. We need to be praying for those who aren't saved. We need to be praying for those who haven't come to faith yet today. And we need to be praying for the growth of those who have come to faith in Christ. So what response does this hope demand? Well, today, at the end of this message, at the conclusion of this worship service, we're going to have a response time, but we're going to do it different. Right where you are today, in these few moments, I'm going to ask you to respond. And so if you will, take a moment and bow your head and close your eyes with me. What response does this hope demand? Well, it demands of me, first of all, that if I have come to faith in Jesus Christ, I need to pause and thank him for that salvation that he has offered me. If you trusted in Christ as your Savior, why don't you pause right now and offer him thanks for that gift that he's offered.